This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. History of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides Chapter 8 Third Year of the War Investment of Plataea Naval Victories of Formio Thracian interruption into Macedonia under Sitalces. The next summer, the Peloponnesians and their allies, instead of invading Attica, marched against Plataea, under the command of Archidamus, son of Zeusidamus, king of the Lacedaemonians. He had encamped his army and was about to lay waste the country, when the Plataeans hastened to send envoys to him and spoke as follows. Archidamus and Lacedaemonians, in invading the Plataean territory, you do what is wrong in itself, and worthy neither of yourselves nor of the fathers who begot you. Pausanias, son of Cleombrotus, your countrymen, after freeing Hellas from the Medes with the help of those Hellenes who were willing to undertake the risk of the battle fought near our city, offered sacrifice to Zeus the Liberator in the marketplace of Plataea and calling all the allies together restored to the Plataeans their city and territory, and declared it independent and inviolate against aggression or conquest. Should any such be attempted, the allies present were to help according to their power. Your fathers rewarded us thus for the courage and patriotism that we displayed at that perilous epoch. But you do just the contrary, coming with our bitterest enemies, the Thebans, to enslave us. We appeal, therefore, to the gods to whom the oaths were then made, to the gods of your ancestors, and lastly, to those of our country, and call upon you to refrain from violating our territory or transgressing the oaths, and to let us live independent, as Pausanias decreed. The Plataeans had got thus far when they were cut short by Archidamus, saying, there is justice, Plataeans, in what you say, if you act up to your words. According to the grant of Pausanias, continue to be independent yourselves, and join in freeing those of your fellow countrymen who, after sharing in the perils of that period, joined in the oaths to you, and are now subject to the Athenians. For it is to free them and the rest that all this provision and war has been made. I wish that you would share our labors and abide by the oaths yourselves. If this is impossible, do what we have already required of you. Remain neutral, enjoying your own. Join neither side, but receive both as friends, neither as allies for the war. With thus we shall be satisfied. Such were the words of Archidamus. The Plataeans, after hearing what he had to say, went into the city and acquainted the people with what had passed and presently returned for answer that it was impossible for them to do what he proposed, without consulting the Athenians, with whom their children and wives now were. Besides which, they had their fears for the town. After his departure, what was to prevent the Athenians from coming and taking it out of their hands, or the Thebans, who would be included in the oaths, from taking advantage of the proposed neutrality to make a second attempt to seize the city? Upon these points he tried to reassure them by saying, You have only to deliver over the city and houses to us, Lacedaemonians, to point out the boundaries of your land. The number of your fruit trees and whatever else can be numerically stated, and yourselves to withdraw wherever you like as long as the war shall last. When it is over, we will restore you to whatever we received, and in the interim hold it in trust and keep it in cultivation, paying you a sufficient allowance. What they had heard what he had to say, they re-entered the city, and after consulting with the people, said that they wished first to acquaint the Athenians with this proposal, and in the event of their approving to accede to it. In the meantime they asked him to grant them a truce and not to lay waste their country. He accordingly granted a truce for the number of days requisite for the journey, and meanwhile abstained from ravaging their territory. The Plataean envoys went to Athens and consulted with the Athenians and returned with the following message to those in the city. 
The Athenians say, Plataeans, that they never hitherto, since we became their allies, on any occasion abandon us to an enemy, nor will they now neglect us, but will help us according to their ability, and they adjure you by the oaths which your fathers swore to keep the alliance unaltered. On the delivery of this message by the envoys, the Plataeans resolved not to be unfaithful to the Athenians, but to endure, if it must be, seeing their lands laid waste and any other trials that might come to them, and not to send out again, but to answer from the wall that it was impossible for them to do as the Lacedaemonians proposed. As soon as he had received this answer, King Archidamus proceeded first to make a solemn appeal to the gods and heroes of the country in words following. Ye gods and heroes of the Plataean territory, be my witnesses that not as aggressors originally, nor until these had first departed from the common oath, did we invade this land, in which our fathers offered you their prayers, before defeating the Medes, and which you made auspicious to the Hellenic arms. Nor shall we be aggressors in the measures to which we may now resort, since we have made many fair proposals, but have not been successful. Graciously accord that those who were the first to offend may be punished for it, and that vengeance may be attained by those who would righteously inflict it. After this appeal to the gods, Archidamus put his army in motion. First he enclosed the town with a palisade, formed of the fruit trees which they cut down, to prevent further egress from Plataea. Next they threw up a mound against the city, hoping that the largeness of the force employed which would ensure the speedy reduction of the place. They accordingly cut down timber from Cytherion, and built it up on either side, laying it like lattice-work to serve as a wall to keep the mound from spreading abroad, and carried it wood and stones and earth and whatever other material might help to complete it. They continued to work at the mound for seventy days and nights without intermission, being divided into relief parties to allow of some being employed in carrying while others took sleep and refreshment. The Lacedaemonian officer attached to each contingent keeping the men to the work. But the Plataeans, observing the progress of the mound, constructed a wall of wood, and fixed it upon that part of the city wall against which the mound was being erected, and built up bricks inside it which they took from the neighboring houses. The timbers served to bind the building together, and to prevent its becoming weak as it advanced in height. It had also a covering of skins and hides, which protected the woodwork against the attacks of burning missiles, and allowed the men to work in safety. Thus the wall was raised to a great height, and the mound opposite made no less rapid progress. The Plataeans also thought of another expedient. They pulled out part of the wall upon which the mound abutted, and carried the earth into the city. Discovering this, the Peloponnesians twisted up clay in wattles of reed and threw it into the breach formed in the mound, in order to give it consistency and prevent its being carried away like the soil. Stopped in this way, the Plataeans changed their mode of operation, and digging a mine from the town calculated their way under the mound, and began to carry off its material as before. This went on for a long while without the enemy outside finding it out, so that for all they threw on top of their mound, they made no progress in proportion, being carried away from beneath and constantly settling down in the vacuum. But the Plataeans, fearing that even thus they might not be able to hold out against the superior numbers of the enemy, had yet another invention. They stopped working at the large building in front of the mound, and starting at either end of it, inside from the old low wall, built a new one in the form of a crescent, running in towards the town, in order that in the event of the great wall being taken, this might remain, and the enemy have to throw up a fresh mound against it, and as they advanced within, might not only have their trouble over again, but also be exposed to missile on their flanks. While raising the mound, the Peloponnesians also brought up engines against the city, one of which was brought up upon the mound against the great building and shook down a good piece of it, to the no small alarm of the Plataeans. Others were advanced against different parts of the wall, but were lassoed and broken by the Plataeans, who also hung up great beams by long iron chains from either extremity of two poles laid on the wall 
and projecting over it, and drew them up at an angle whenever any point was threatened by the engine, and loosing their hold let the beam go with its chain slack, so that it fell with a run and snapped off the nose of the battering ram. After this the Peloponnesians, finding that their engines affected nothing, and that their mound was met by the counterwork, concluded that their present means of offense were unequal to the taking of the city, and prepared for its circumvallation. First, however, they determined to try the effects of fire, and see whether they could not, with the help of a wind, burn the town, as it was not a large one. Indeed, they thought of every possible expedient by which the place might be reduced without the expense of a blockade. They accordingly brought faggots of brushwood and threw them from the mound, first into the space between it and the wall. And this soon becoming full from the number of hands at work, they next heaped the faggots up as far into the town as they could reach from the top, and then lighted the wood by setting fire to it with sulfur and pitch. The consequence was a fire greater than anyone had ever yet seen produced by human agency, though it could not, of course, be compared to the spontaneous conflagrations sometimes known to occur through the wind rubbing the branches of a mountain forest together. And this fire was not only remarkable for its magnitude, but was also, at the end of so many perils, within an ace of proving fatal to the Plataeans. A great part of the town became entirely inaccessible, and had a wind blown upon it, in accordance with the hopes of the enemy. Nothing could have saved them. As it was, there was also a story of heavy rain and thunder having come on by which the fire was put out and the danger averted. Failing in this last attempt, the Peloponnesians left a portion of their forces on the spot, dismissing the rest, and built a wall of circumvallation around the town, dividing the ground among the various cities present, a ditch being made within and without the lines from which they got their bricks. All being finished by about the rising of Arcturus, they left men enough to man half the wall, the rest being manned by the Boeotians, and drawing off their army dispersed to their several cities. The Plataeans had before sent off their wives and children and oldest men and the mass of the non-combatants to Athens, so that the number of the besieged left in the place comprised four hundred of their own citizens, eighty Athenians, and a hundred and ten women to bake their bread. This was the sum total at the commencement of the siege, and there was no one else before within the walls, bond or free. Such were the arrangements made for the blockade of Plataea. The same summer, and simultaneously with the expedition against Plataea, the Athenians marched with two thousand heavy infantry and two hundred horse against the Chalcidians in the direction of Thrace and the Batiaeans just as the corn was getting ripe, under the command of Xenophon, son of Euripides, with two colleagues. Arriving before Spartalus in Batia, they destroyed the corn and had some hopes of the city coming over through the intrigues of a faction within. But those of a different way of thinking had sent to Olynthus, and a garrison of heavy infantry and other troops arrived accordingly. These issuing from Spartalus were engaged by the Athenians in front of the town, the Chalcidian heavy infantry and some auxiliaries with them were beaten and retreated into Spartalus, but the Chalcidian horse and light troops defeated the horse and light troops of the Athenians. The Chalcidians had already a few targeteers from Crusus, and presently after the battle were joined by some others from Olynthus, upon seeing whom the light troops from Spartalus, emboldened by this accession and by their previous success, with the help of the Chalcidian horse and the reinforcement just arrived again attacked the Athenians, who retired upon the two divisions which they had left with their baggage. Whenever the Athenians advanced, their adversary gave way, pressing them with missiles the instant they began to retire. The Chalcidian horse also, riding up and charging them just as they pleased, at last caused a panic amongst them and routed and pursued them to a great distance. The Athenians took refuge in Potidaea, and afterwards recovered their dead under truce, and returned to Athens with the remnant of their army, four hundred and thirty men and all the generals having fallen. The Chalcidians and Batians set up a trophy, took up their dead, and dispersed to their several cities. The same summer, not long after this, the Ambrosiates and Caonians 
being desirous of reducing the whole of Acarnania and detaching it from Athens, persuaded the Lacedaemonians to equip a fleet from their confederacy and send a thousand heavy infantry to Acarnania, representing that, if a combined movement were made by land and sea, the coast Acarnanians would be unable to march, and the conquest of Zasithus and Cephalania, easily following on the possession of Acarnania, the crews round Peloponnese would be no longer so convenient for the Athenians. Besides which there was a hope of taking Nepactus. The Lacedaemonians accordingly at once sent off a few vessels with Snamus, who was still high admiral, and the heavy infantry on board, and sent round orders for the fleet to equip as quickly as possible and sailed to Lucas. The Corinthians were the most forward in the business, the Ambrosiates being a colony of theirs, while the ships from Corinth, Sicyon, and the neighborhood were getting ready, and those from Lucas, Anactorium, and Ambracia, which had arrived before, were waiting for them at Lucas, Snamus and his thousand heavy infantry had run into the gulf, giving the slip to Formio, the commander of the Athenian squadron stationed off Napactus, and began at once to prepare for the land expedition. The Hellenic troops with him consisted of the Ambrosiates, Leucadians, and Actorians, and the thousand Peloponnesians with whom he came, the barbarian of a thousand Caonians, who, belonging to a nation that has no king, were led by Phatis and Nicanor, the two members of the royal family to whom the chieftainship for that year had been confided. With the Caonians came also some Thesprotians, who, like them, without a king, some Molossians, Atintanians, led by Sablinthus, the guardian of King Tharps, who was still a minor, and some Paravians, under their king Erodius, accompanied by a thousand Orestians, subjects of King Anticus, and placed by him under the command of Erodus. There were also a thousand Macedonians, sent by Perdixus, without the knowledge of the Athenians, but they arrived too late. With this force, Namus sent out, without waiting for the fleet from Corinth. Passing through the territory of Amphilochian Argos, and sacking the open village of Limnia, they advanced to the Stratus, the Acarnanian capital. This once taken, the rest of the country, they felt convinced, would speedily follow. The Acarnanians, finding themselves invaded by a large army by land and from the sea threatened by a hostile fleet, made no combined attempt at resistance, but remained to defend their homes, and sent for help to Formio, who replied that, when a fleet was on the point of sailing from Corinth, it was impossible for him to leave Nepactus unprotected. The Peloponnesians, meanwhile, and their allies advanced upon Stratus in three divisions, with the intention of encamping near it and attempting the wall by force if they failed to succeed by negotiation. The order of march was as follows. The center was occupied by the Caonians and the rest of the barbarians, with the Leucadians and Actorians and their followers on the right, and Snamus with the Peloponnesians and Ambrosiates on the left, each division being a long way off from, and sometimes even out of sight from, the others. The Hellenes advanced in good order, keeping a look at till they encamped in a good position, but the Caonians, filled with self-confidence and having the highest character for courage among the tribes of that part of the continent, without waiting to occupy their camp, rushed on with the rest of the barbarians, in the idea that they should take the town by assault and obtain the sole glory of the enterprise. While they were coming on, the Stratians, becoming aware of how things stood, and thinking that the, end, that the defeat of this division would considerably dishearten the Hellenes behind it, occupied the environs of the town with ambuscades, and as soon as they approached engaged them at close quarters from the city and the ambuscades. A panic seizing the Caonians, great numbers of them were slain, and as soon as they were seen to give way, the rest of the barbarians turned and fled. Owing to the distance by which their allies had preceded them, neither of the Hellenic divisions knew anything of the battle, but fancied they were hastening off to encamp. However, when the flying barbarians broke in upon them, they opened their ranks to receive them, brought their divisions together, and stopped quiet where they were for the day. The Stratians not offering to engage them, as the rest of the Acarnanians had not yet arrived, but contenting themselves with sl slinging at them from a distance, which distressed them greatly, as there was no stirring without their armor. The Acarnanians would seem to excel in this mode of warfare.
As soon as night fell, Snamus hastily drew his army to the river Anapus, about nine miles from Stratus, recovering his dead next day under truce, and being there joined by the friendly Onidiae, fell back upon their city before the enemy's reinforcements came up. From hence each returned home, and the Stratians set up a trophy for the battle with the barbarians. Meanwhile, the fleet from Corinth, and the rest of the confederates in the Crissian Gulf, which was to have cooperated with Snamus and prevented the coast or Carnanians from joining their countrymen in the interior, was disabled from doing so by being compelled about the same time as the battle at Stratus to fight with Formio and the twenty Athenian vessels stationed at Napactus. For they were watched, as they coasted along of, of the gulf, by Formio, who wished to attack in the open sea. But the Corinthians and allies had started for Carnania without any idea of fighting at sea, and with vessels more like transports for carrying soldiers, besides which, they never dreamed of the twenty Athenian ships venturing to engage their forty-seven. However, while they were coasting along their own shore, there were the Athenians sailing along in line with them. And when they tried to cross over from Patre in Achaea to the mainland on the other side, on their way to Acarnania, they saw them again coming out from Chalcis and the river Evenus to meet them. They slipped from their moorings in the night, but were observed, and were at length compelled to fight in mid-passage. Each state that contributed to the armament had its own general. The Corinthian commanders were Machaon, Isocrates, and Agatharchidas. The Peloponnesians ranged their vessels in as large a circle as possible, without leaving an opening, with the prows outside and the sterns in, and placed within all the small craft in company, and their five best sailors to issue out at a moment's notice and strengthen any point threatened by the enemy. The Athenians, formed in line, sailed round and round them, and forced them to contract their circle by continually brushing past and making as though they would attack at once, having been previously cautioned by Formio not to do so till he gave the signal. His hope was that the Peloponnesians would not retain their order like a force on shore, but that the ships would fall foul of one another, and the small craft cause confusion, and if the wind should blow from the gulf, in expectation of which he kept sailing round them, and which usually rose toward morning, they would not, he felt sure, remain steady an instant. He also thought that it rested with him to attack when he pleased, as his ships were better sailors, and then an attack timed by the coming of the wind would tell best. When the wind came down, the enemy's ships were now in a narrow space, and what with the wind and the small craft dashing against them, at once fell into confusion. Ship fell foul of ship, while the crews were pushing them off with poles, and by their shouting, swearing, and struggling with one another, made captain's orders and boatswain's cries alike inaudible. And through being unable for want of practice to clear their oars in the rough water, prevented the vessels from obeying their helmsmen properly. At this moment Formio gave the signal, and the Athenians attacked. Sinking first one of the admirals, they then disabled all they came across, so that no one thought of resistance for the confusion, but fled for Patri and Dime in Achaea. The Athenians gave chase and captured twelve ships, and taking most of the men out of them, sailed to Malacrium, and after setting up a trophy on the promontory of Rium, and dedicating a ship to Poseidon, returned to Napactus. As for the Peloponnesians, they at once sailed with their remaining ships along the coast from Dime and Patri to Cyllene, the Elean arsenal, where Snemus and the ships from Lucas that were to have joined them also arrived after battle at Stratus. The Lacedaemonians now sent their fleet to Snemus, three commissioners, Timocrates, Bradidus, and Lycophron, with orders to prepare to engage again with better fortune, and not to be driven from the sea by a few vessels, for they could not at all account for their discomfiture, the less so as it was their first attempt at sea, and they fancied that it was not that their marine was so inferior, but that there had been a misconduct somewhere, not considering the long experience of the Athenians as compared with the little practice which with they had themselves. The commissioners were accordingly sent in anger. As soon as they arrived, they set up to work with Snamus to order ships from the different states, and to put those which they had already had in fighting order. Meanwhile, Formio sent word to Athens of their preparations and his own victory, and desired as many ships as possible to be speedily sent to him, 
as he stood in daily expectation of a battle. Twenty were accordingly sent, but instructions were given to their commander to go first to Crete. For Nicias, a Cretan of Gordus, who was proxenus of the Athenians, and persuaded them to sail against Sidonia, promising to procure the reduction of that hostile town, his real wish being to oblige the Polycnetans, neighbors of the Sidonians. He accordingly went with the ships to Crete, and accompanied by the Polycnetans, laid waste the lands of the Sidonians, and with that adverse wind and stress of weather wasted no little time there. While the Athenians were thus detained in Crete, the Peloponnesians and Silene got ready for battle, and coasted along to Panormus in Achaea, where their land army had come to support them. Formio also coasted along to Malacrian Rium, and anchored outside it with twenty ships, the same as he had fought with before. This Rium was friendly to the Athenians. The other, in Peloponnese, lies opposite to it. The sea between them is about three-quarters of a mile broad, and forms the mouth of the Chrysaean Gulf. At this, the Achaean Rium, not far off Panormus, where their army lay, the Peloponnesians now cast anchor with twenty-seven ships, when they saw the Athenians do so. For six or seven days they remained opposite each other, practicing and preparing for battle. The one resolved not to sail out of the Rhea into the open sea, for fear of the disaster which had already happened to them, the other not to sail into the straits, thinking it advantageous to the enemy to fight in the narrows. At last Namus, Ambrasidus, and the rest of the Peloponnesian commanders, being desirous of bringing on a battle as soon as possible, before reinforcements should arrive from Athens, and noticing that the men were most of them cowed by the previous defeat and out of heart for the business, first called them together and encouraged them as follows. Peloponnesians, the late engagement, which may have made some of you afraid of the one now in prospect, really gives no just ground for apprehension. Preparation for it, as you know, there was little enough, and the object of our voyage was not so much to fight at sea as an expedition by land. Besides this, the chances of war were largely against us, and perhaps also inexperience had something to do with our failure in our first naval action. It was not, therefore, cowardice that produced our defeat, nor ought the determination which force has not quelled, but which still has a word to say with its adversary, to lose its edge from the result of an accident. But admitting the possibility of a chance miscarriage, we should know that brave hearts must be always brave, and while they remain so, can never put forward inexperience as an excuse for misconduct. Nor are you so behind the enemy in experience as you are ahead of him in courage, and although the science of your opponents would, if valor accompanied it, have also the presence of mind to carry out at an emergency the lesson it has learnt, yet a faint heart will make all art powerless in the face of danger, for fear takes away presence of mind and without valor art is useless. Against their superior experience set your superior daring, and against the fear induced by defeat the fact of your having been them unprepared. Remember, too, that you have always the advantage of superior numbers, and of engaging off your own coast, supported by your heavy infantry, and as a rule, numbers and equipment give victory. At no point, therefore, is defeat likely, and as for our previous mistakes, the very fact of their occurrence will teach us better for the future. Steersmen and sailors may, therefore, confidently attend to their several duties, none quitting the station assigned to them. As for ourselves, we promise to prepare for the engagement at least as well as your previous commanders, and to give no excuse for any one misconducting himself. Should any insist on doing so, he shall meet with the punishment he deserves, while the brave shall be honored with the appropriate rewards of valor. The Peloponnesian commanders encouraged their men after this fashion. Formio, meanwhile, being himself not without fears for the courage of his men, and noticing that they were forming in groups among themselves and were alarmed at the odds against them, desired to call them together and give them confidence and counsel in the present emergency. He had therefore continually told them, and had accustomed their minds to the idea, that there was no numerical superiority that they could not face and the men themselves had long been persuaded that Athenians need never retire before any quantity of Peloponnesian vessels. At the moment, however, he saw that they were dispirited by the sight before them, and wishing to refresh their confidence, called them together and spoke as follows. I see, my men, 
that you are frightened by the number of the enemy. And I have accordingly called you together, not liking you to be afraid of what is not really terrible. In the first place, the Peloponnesians, already defeated, and not even thinking themselves that they are a match for us, have not ventured to meet us on equal terms, but have equipped this multitude of ships against us. Next, as to that upon which they most rely, the courage which they suppose constitutional to them, their confidence here only arises from the successes which their experience in land service usually gives them, and which they fancy will do the same for them at sea. But this advantage will in all justice belong to us on this element, if to them on that, as they are not superior to us in courage, but we are each of us more confident, according to our experience in particular department. Besides, as the Lacedaemonians use their supremacy over their allies to promote their own glory, they are most of them being brought into danger against their will, or they would never, after such a decided defeat, have ventured upon a fresh engagement. You need not, therefore, be afraid of their dash. You, on the contrary, inspire a much greater and better founded alarm, both because of your late victory, and also because of their belief that we should not face them, unless about to do something worthy of a success so signal. An adversary numerically superior, like the one before us, comes into action trusting more to strength than to resolution, while he who, who voluntarily confronts tremendous odds must have very great internal resources to draw upon. For these reasons the Peloponnesians fear our irrational audacity more than they would ever have done a more commensurate preparation. Besides, many armaments have before now succumbed to an inferior through want of skill or sometimes of courage, neither of which defects certainly are ours. As to the battle, it shall not be, if I can help it, in the strait, nor will I sail in there at all, seeing that in a contest between a number of clumsily managed vessels and a small, fast, well-handled squadron, want of sea-room is an undoubted disadvantage. One cannot run down an enemy properly without having a sight of him a good way off, nor can one retire at need when pressed. One can neither break the line nor turn upon his rear, the proper, proper tactics for a fast sailor. But the naval action necessarily becomes a land one, in which our numbers must decide the matter. For all this I will provide as far as can be. Do you stay at your posts by your ships, and be sharp at catching the word of command? the more so as we are observing one another from so short a distance, and in action think order and silence all important qualities, useful in war generally, and in naval engagements in particular, and behave before the enemy in a manner worthy of your past exploits. The issues you will fight for are great, to destroy the naval hopes of the Peloponnesians, or to bring nearer to the Athenians their fears for the sea, and I may once more remind you that you have defeated most of them already and beaten men do not face a danger twice with the same determination. Such was the exhortation of Formio. The Peloponnesians, finding that the Athenians did not sail into the gulf in the narrows, in order to lead them into whether they wished it or not, put out at dawn, and forming four abreast, sailed inside the gulf in the direction of their own country, the right wing leading as they had lain at anchor. In this wing were placed twenty of their best sailors, so that in the event of Formio thinking that their object was Nepactus, and coasting along thither to save the place, the Athenians might not be able to escape their onset by getting outside their wing, but might be cut off by the vessels in question. As they expected, Formio, in alarm for the place at that moment emptied of its garrison, as soon as he saw them put out, reluctantly and hurriedly embarked and sailed along shore. The Messenian land forces moving along also to support him. The Peloponnesians, seeing him coasting along with his ships in a single file, and by this inside the gulf, and close in, so in shore, as they so much wished, at one signal attacked suddenly, and bore down in line at their best speed on the Athenians, hoping to cut off the whole squadron. The eleven leading vessels, however, escaped the Peloponnesian wing and its sudden movement, and reached the more open water. But the rest were overtaken as they tried to run through, driven ashore and disabled such of the crews being slain as had not swum out, out of them. Some of the ships the Peloponnesians lashed to their own, and towed off empty. One they took with the men in it. Others were just being towed off, when they were saved by the Messanians dashing into the sea with their armor and fighting from the decks that they had boarded. Thus far victory was with the Peloponnesians, and the Athenian fleet destroyed, 
the twenty ships in the right wing being meanwhile in chase of the eleven Athenian vessels that had escaped their sudden movement and reached the more open water. These, with the exception of one ship, all outsailed them and got safe into Napactus, and forming close inshore opposite the temple of Apollo, with their prows facing the enemy, prepared to defend themselves in case the Peloponnesians should sail inshore against them. After a while the Peloponnesians came up, chanting the peon for their victory as they sailed on, the single Athenian ship remaining being chased by a Lacadian, far ahead of the rest. But there happened to be a merchantman lying at anchor in the roadstead, which the Athenian ship found time to sail around, and struck the Lucadian in chase amidships and sank her. An exploit so sudden and unexpected produced a panic among the Peloponnesians. And having fallen out of order in the, in the excitement of victory, some of them dropped their oars and stopped their way in order to let the main body come up, an unsafe thing to do considering how near they were to the enemy's prows, while others ran aground in the shallows in the ignorance of the localities. Elated at this incident, the Athenians at one word gave a cheer and dashed at the enemy who, embarrassed by his mistakes and the disorder in which he found himself, only stood for an instant and then fled for Panormus, whence he had put out. Put out. The Athenians following on his heels took the six vessels nearest them and recovered those of their own which had been disabled close in shore and then taken in tow at the beginning of the action. They killed some of the crews and took some prisoners. On board the Lucadian which went down off the merchantmen was the Lacedaemonian Timocrates, who killed himself when the ship was sunk and was cast up in the harbor of Napactus. The Athenians on their return set up a trophy on the spot from which they had put out and turned the day, and picking up the wrecks and dead that were on their shore, gave back to the enemy their dead under truce. The Peloponnesians also set up a trophy as victors for the defeat, inflicted upon the ships they had disabled in shore, and dedicated the vessel which they had taken at Achaean Rheum, side by side with the trophy. After this, apprehensive of the reinforcement expected from Athens, all except the Lucadians sailed into the Crissian Gulf for Corinth. Not long after the retreat, the twenty Athenian ships which were to have joined Formio before the battle arrived at Napactus. Thus the summer ended. Winter was now at hand, but dispersing the fleet which had retired to Corinth in the Crissian Gulf, Snamus, Brasidas, and the other Peloponnesian captains allowed themselves to be persuaded by the Megarians to make an attempt upon Piraeus, the port of Athens, which from her decided superiority at sea had been naturally left unguard unguarded and open. Their plan was this. The men were each to take their oar, cushion, and rowlock thong, and, going overland from Corinth to the sea on the Athenian side, to get to Megara as quickly as they could, and, launching forty vessels, which happened to be in the docks at Nicaea, to sail at once to Piraeus. There was no fleet on the lookout in the harbor, and no one had the least idea of the enemy attempting a surprise. While an open attack would, it was thought, never be delivered, deliberately ventured on, or if, in contemplation, would be speedily known in Athens. Their plan formed, the next step was to put it in execution. Arriving by night, and launching the vessels from Nicaea, they sailed out, not to Piraeus as they had originally intended, being afraid of the risk, besides which there was some talk of a wind having stopped them, but to the point of Salamis that looks toward Megara, where there was a fort and a squadron of three ships to prevent anything sailing in or out of Megara. This fort they assaulted, and towed off the, off the galleys empty, and surprising the inhabitants began to lay waste to the rest of the island. Meanwhile fire signals were raised to alarm Athens, and a panic ensued there as serious as any that occurred during the war. The idea in the city was that the enemy had already sailed into Piraeus. In Piraeus it was thought that they had taken Salamis, and might at any moment arrive in the port, as indeed might easily have been done if their hearts had been a little firmer. Certainly no wind would have prevented them. As soon as day broke, the Athenians assembled in full force, launched their ships, and embarking in haste and uproar went with the fleet to Salamis, while their soldiery mounted guard in Piraeus. The Peloponnesians, on, being becoming, on becoming aware of the coming relief, after they had overrun most of Salamis, hastily sailed off with their plunder and captives, and the three ships from Fort Bedorum to Nicaea. The state of their ships also causing them some anxiety, as it was a long while since they had been launched, and they were not watertight. Arrived at Megara, they returned back on foot to Corinth. The Athenians, finding them no longer at Salamis, sailed back themselves, and after this made arrangements for guiding 
guarding Piraeus more diligently in future, by closing the harbours and by other suitable precautions. About the same time, at the beginning of this winter, Satalces, son of Tiris, the Odrysian king of Thrace, made an expedition against per Perdixus, son of Alexander, king of Macedonia, and the Chalcidians in the neighbourhood of Thrace, his object being to enforce one promise and fulfil another. On the one hand, Perdixus had made him a promise, when hard-pressed at the commencement of the war, upon condition that Satalces should reconcile the Athenians to him, and not attempt to restore his brother and enemy, the pretender Philip, but had not offered to fulfil his engagement. On the other, he, Satalces, on entering into alliance with the Athenians, had agreed to put an end to the Chalcidian war in Thrace. These were the two objects of his invasion. With him he brought Amyntas, the son of Philip, whom he destined for the throne of Macedonia, and some Athenian envoys then at his court on this business, and Hagnon as general. For the Athenians were to join him against the Chalcidians with a fleet and as many soldiers as they could get together. Beginning with the Odrysians, he first called out the Thracian tribes subject to him between Mounts Hemus and Rhodope, and the Euxin and Hellespont, next to the Gete beyond Hemus, and the other hordes settled south of the Danube in the neighborhood of the Exun, who, like the Geti, border on the Scythians, and are armed in the same manner, being all mounted archers. Besides these, he summoned many of the hill Thracian independent swordsmen, called D, and mostly inhabiting Mount Rhodope, some of whom came as mercenaries, others as volunteers. Also the Agrians and Lassians, and the rest of the Paeonian tribes in his empire, at the confines of which these lay, extending up to the Lyaean Paeonians and the river Strymon, which flows from Mount Scrombrus through the country of the Agrians and the Lyans, there being the empire of Cetalces, ends and the territory of the independent Paeonians begins. Bordering on the Triballi, also independent, were the Treres and Telatians, who dwell to the north of Mount Scombrus and extend toward the setting sun as far as the river Oscius. This river rises in the same mountains as the Nestus and Hebrus, a wild and extensive range connected with Rhodope. The empire of the Odrysians extended along the seaboard from Abdera to the mouth of the Danube in the Euxine. The navigation of this coast by the shortest route takes a merchantman four days and four nights with a wind astern the whole way. By land, an active man, traveling by the shortest road, can get from Abdera to the Danube in eleven days. Such was the length of its coastline. Inland from Byzantium to the Laeans and the Strymon, the farthest limit of its extension into the interior, is a journey of thirteen days for an active man. The tribute from all the barbarian districts and the Hellenic cities taking what they brought in under Suths, the successor of Cetalces, who raised it to his greatest height, amounted to about four hundred talents in gold and silver. There were also presents in gold and silver to a no less amount, besides stuff, plain and embroidered, and other articles made not only for the king, but also for the Odrysian lords and nobles. For there was here established a custom opposite to that prevailing in the Persian kingdom, namely, of taking rather than giving more disgrace being attached to not giving when asked than to, than to asking and being refused. And although this prevailed elsewhere in Thrace, it was practiced most extensively among the powerful Odrysians, it being impossible to get anything done without a present. It was thus a very powerful kingdom, in revenue and general prosperity surpassing all in Europe between the Ionian Gulf and the Euxine, and in numbers and military resources coming decidedly next to Scythians, with whom indeed no people in Europe can bear a comparison there not being even in Asia any nation singly a match for them if unanimous, though of course they are not on a level with other races in general intelligence and the arts of civilized life. It was the master of this empire that now prepared to take the field. When everything was ready, he set out on his march for Macedonia, first the, through his own dominions, next over the desolate range of Circene that divides the Scythians and Paeonians crossing by a road which he had made by felling the timber on a former campaign against the latter people. Passing over these mountains, with the Paeonians on his right and the Scythians and Medians on the left, he finally arrived at Doberus, in Paeonia, losing none of his army on the march, except perhaps by sickness, but receiving some augmentations, many of the independent Thracians volunteering to join him in the hope of plunder, so that the whole is said to have formed 
a grand total of a hundred and fifty thousand. Most of this was infantry, though there was about a third cavalry, furnished principally by the Odrysians themselves, and next to them by the Gete. The most warlike of the infantry were the independent swordsmen who came down from Rhodope, the rest of the mixed multitude that followed him being chiefly formidable by their numbers. Assembling in Doberus, they prepared for descending from the heights upon lower Macedonia, where the dominions of Perdixus lay. For the Lincesti, Elimiots, and other tribes more inland, though Macedonians by blood and allies and dependents of their kindred, still have their own separate governments. The country on the sea coast, now called Macedonia, was first acquired by Alexander, the father of Perdixus, and his ancestors, originally Temenids from Argos. This was effected by the expulsion from Pyrrha of the Pyrians, who afterwards inhabited Philagrius and other places under Mount Panangius, beyond the Strymon. Indeed, the country between the Pangaeus and the sea is still called the Pierian Gulf. Of the Boeotians, at present, neighbors of the Chalcidians from Badia, and by the acquisition in Paeonia of a narrow strip along the river Axius, extending to Pella and the sea. The district of Magdonia, between the Axius and the Strymon, being also added by the expulsion of the Adonians. From Eordia also were driven the Eordians, most of whom perished, though a few of them still live around Fisca, and the Almopians from Almopia. These Macedonians also conquered places belonging to other tribes, which are still theirs, Anthemus, Christonia, Basaltia, and much of Macedonia proper. The whole is now called Macedonia, and at the time of the invasion of Satalces, Perdixus, Alexander's son, was the reigning king. These Macedonians, unable to take the field against so numerous an invader, shut themselves up in such strong places and fortresses as the country possessed. Of these there was no great number, most of those now found in the country having been erected subsequently by Archelaus, the son of Perdixus, on his accession, who also cut straight roads and otherwise put the kingdom on a better footing as regards horses, heavy infantry, and other more material than had been done by all the eight kings that preceded him. Advancing from Doberus, the Thracian host first invaded what had once been Philip's government, and took Idemone by assault, Gort Gortinia, Atalanta, and some other places by negotiation. These last coming over for the love of Philip's son, Amyntas, then with Satalces. Laying siege to Europus, failing to take it, he next advanced into the rest of Macedonia to the left of Pella and Cyrus, not proceeding beyond this into Boeotia and Pieria, but, but staying to lay waste Mygdonia, Crestonia, and Anthemus. The Macedonians never even thought of meeting him with infantry, but the Thracian host was, as opportunity offered, attacked by handfuls of their horse, which had been reinforced from their allies in the interior. Armed with cuirasses and excellent horsemen, wherever these charged they overthrew all before them, but ran considerable risk in entangling themselves in the masses of the enemy and so finally desisted from these efforts, deciding that they were not strong enough to venture against numbers so superior. Meanwhile, Satalces opened negotiations with Perdixus on the objects of his expedition, and finding that the Athenians, not believing that he would come, did not appear with their fleet, though they sent presents and envoys, dispatched a large part of his army against the Chalcidians and Bautians, and shutting them upside inside their walls, laid waste their country. While he remained in these parts, the people farther south, such as the Thessalians, Magnetes, and the other tribes subject to the Thessalians, and the Hellenes as far as Thermopylae, all feared that the army might advance against them, and prepared accordingly. These fears were shared by the Thracians beyond the Strymon to the north, who inhabited the plains, such as the Paneans, the Odomanti, the Droi, and the Dersians, all of whom are independent. It was even matter of conversation among the Hellenes, who were enemies of Athens, whether he might not be invited by his ally to advance also against them. Meanwhile he held Chalcides and Bautis and Macedonia, and was ravaging them all, but finding that he was not succeeding in any of the objects of his invasion, and that his army was without provisions, and was suffering from the severity of the season, he listened to the advice of Suthes, son of Spartacus, his nephew and highest officer, and decided to retreat without delay. This Suthes, 
had been secretly gained by Perdixus by the promise of his sister in marriage with a rich dowry. In accordance with his advice, with this advice, and after a stay of thirty days in all, eight of which were spent in Chalcides, he retired home as quickly as he could, and Perdixus afterwards gave his sister Stratonice to Susis, as he had promised. Such was the history of the expedition of Satelces. In the course of this winter, after the dispersion of the Peloponnesian fleet, the Athenians in Napactus, under Formio, coasted along to Astacus and disembarked, and marched into the interior of Acarnania with four hundred Athenian heavy infantry and four hundred Messenians. After expelling some suspected persons from Stratus, Caranta, and other places, and restoring Sinese, son of Theolitus, to Caranta, they returned to their ships, deciding that it was impossible in the winter season to march against Onidia, a place which, unlike the rest of Acarnania, had always been hostile to them, for the river Achilos, flowing from Mount Pindus through the Dilapia and the country of the Agrians and Amphilochians, and the plain of Acarnania, past the town of Stratus in the upper part of its course, forms lakes where it falls into the sea round Onidia, and thus makes it impracticable for an army in winter by reason of the water. Opposite to Onidia lie most of the islands called Echinades, so close to the mouths of the Achilles that that powerful stream is constantly forming deposits against them, and has already joined some of the islands to the continent, and seems likely in no long while to do the same with the rest. For the current is strong, deep, and turbid, and the islands are so thick together that they serve to imprison the alluvial deposit and prevent its dispersing lying as they do, not in one line, but irregularly, so as to leave no direct passage for the water into the open sea. The islands in question are, are uninhabited and of no great size. There is also a story that Alcmion, son of Amphorus, during his wanderings after the murder of his mother, was bidden by Apollo to inhabit this spot, through an oracle which intimated that he would have no release from his terrors until he should find a country to dwell in, which had not been seen by the sun or existed as land at the time he slew his mother, else, all else being to, to him polluted ground. Perplexed at this, the story goes on to say he at last observed this deposit of the Achilles, and considered that a place sufficient to support life upon might have been thrown up during the long interval that had elapsed since the death of his mother and the beginning of his wanderings. Settling, therefore, in the district round Onidae, he founded a, dom a dominion, and left the country its name from his son Acharnon. Such is the story we have received, consider, considering Alcmion. The Athenians in Formio, putting back from Acarnania, and arriving at Napactus, sailed home to Athens in the spring, taking with them the ships that they had captured, and such of the prisoners made in the light actions as were freemen, and were exchanged man for man. And so ended this winter, and the third year of this war, of which Thucydides was the historian. This is the end of chapter 8.